Varmna välkomna till podcasten Författarscenen, internationell författarscen, Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Namnet var Ingemar Fast och jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i detta stora hus i Särkestorg. Och nu, kära vänner och bekanta, ska ni få lyssna till samtalet som utspann sig mellan Nino Haratishvili och Mats Almegård. Thank you Ingemar for the kind introduction. Um, and very welcome, Nino. I hope you felt the warmth in the applause. <laughs> because one of your characters in the book speaks of Stockholm and its nördliche unnabarkeit, the <laughs> nordliga otillgängligheten. Have you witnessed that today or No, I'm good. good. I'm happy. <laughs> I'm completely excited and really happy to be here. And it's my first time and I got uh a little bit in love, so I hope it's not going to be my last time here. I read uh, a review of The Eighth Life, the English translation by um Wendell Stevenson in uh, the New York Times. And the title of the review was uh, Who Needs a Sweeping Epic About the Red Century? You Do. (laughs) And I thought about that when I picked up the book this summer. I had to go to the postal office because my mailman couldn't put it into my... (laughs) I'm uh, sorry. (laughs) No, it's okay. I needed the exercise, but it wouldn't enter the letterbox. And in, in German, this is the German original, it has 1,279 pages, and this uh, tiny little book in Swedish has 1,151. But, and I suppose you get these kind of reactions all the time, just because you wrote a, a pretty thick book. Are you tired of this? Mm. No, I mean, uh, yes, of course, I do get this reaction, uh, this kind of reaction oh, quite often. But um, the best thing I've heard, it was a, a man in Frankfurt, and he suggested, oh, it's a quite brilliant book to kill somebody. So, <laughs> <laughs> I was a little bit terrified, but why not? <laughs> I so, hope you wouldn't be prosecuted as kind of... <laughs> Me too, yes. Yeah. But, but um, your debut novel, Die Katze und der General, Katten och generalen, that was 766 pages. So no, you have it's, a it's, thing it's for it. No, it's not my debut. No? It's my, my debut, it was like normal uh, size, um, 300 or something. Mm-hmm, that's a normal uh, novel. That's normal, yeah? okay. I would say. Yeah, okay, good yeah. to define. Uh, and Katze and as a cat in the general, is, uh, it, it was a book after that. So. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah, but I'm trying my best. But but uh, to be honest, now, uh, <coughs> do you need the pages, so to speak, or would it be hard for you to write uh, a tiny normal novel like 150 pages? Apparently, my talent is not in short stories, so ad- I admit. <laughs> Um, somehow, yes, I, I, I need, I need, but it depends on, I also write plays and plays are often short and normal size. And I have these two first novels, uh, my first one and second one, they are also normal. So for me, it depends, um, it's about the story I'm writing and um, in this case, it was not planned so huge uh, because 
uh, I started uh, with the idea of a family history about a Georgian family, but wanted to focus on like 80s and 90s, the period I was born and grew up. Um, like, and everything that followed afterwards, like the perestroika and um, economical crisis and social crisis and civil wars and so on. But um, I realized it's, it's like an ending of something, so I had to go back in time. And I got a little bit addicted because I, I, I loved that research and finding out so many things. Um, it was a quite selfish process because I had a lot of questions and I always used this symbol or picture of a house with a lot of doors and rooms and every time when I thought I entered them all, I discovered like much more um, places. So in that case it was not, okay, at some point I realized it's going to be quite big, but I ignored that thought and said, okay, this is something my publisher is going to be worried about because it was, it was a process and I was completely into it and I could not stop. So I knew it's like a mission and I have to go um, till the end and don't care about like the size or um, the pages. But I know it was a problem. In the beginning it was a problem and they were even discussing the option of making like two or three books, but I was strictly against it because for me it's not like this Harry Potter system. It's it's um, um, it's like um, one story mm -hmm. um, from A to B or Z, and uh, that's why um, for me it was important to have like one book but there are some in some um, different languages for example in Poland they did like two books so and I know it was a problem even like in the beginning everyone was keeping repeating who's going to read that it's too big and um, I, I can understand that it's quite frightening the size when you see that it's funny that you mentioned Harry Potter because I asked you a Harry Potter related question when mm -hmm. I did an interview with you for Doggins News. <laughs> Do you like think of Harry Potter when you see me now or is <laughs> No, no. No, no. <laughs> no, I used to say Harry Potter. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay, good, good. I'm just uh, curious. Uh, because of the glasses and everything, you know. So No, but oh. <laughs> Okay. But uh, you said you wanted to write a story about the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. And then you had to go back to explain some things. And, and you start around 1900, right? Yeah. And so this is a story about the Russian revolutions. It's a story about the First World War, or the Second World War, Stalinism, Soviet Union, uh, and then, as you said, Perestroika, First Cold War, and then the disintegration of the Soviet Union, and then the post-Soviet Union state of Georgia, with its... Um, economic problems, uh, with uh, lack of uh, electricity, etc. So how come you wanted to, to back to 1900? Because in the book it also says that it's always hard to, to know where to start or where to... Uh, the story could begin at another place or another time, it says in the book. And was it for that, like that for you? I think it was an intuitional decision because this book is quite inspired by real history and you don't have this, you know, like the starting point or the ending. That's why this book is like um, 
the end is open because the history continues and of course I cannot know what's like the ending of it. And um, somehow it was because I thought, okay, this is the main focus um, of that book is uh, on the Soviet regime and the um, Georgia, yeah, I mean, Georgia during that Soviet regime. And um, um, I forgot what I wanted to say. <laughs> yes. I, I can ask uh, you all to check if your mobile phones are turned off uh, the sound now. Um, I think they are, but oh. and I don't. I didn't really want to start with the revolution um, and the entering of Red Army in Georgia because I wanted to have a beautiful prologue, like um, this end of a completely different era and century, uh, because I knew afterwards a lot of harsh stuff would come and happen to all the characters and somehow have an impact on them. So I wanted to have a, like a, yes, like this beautiful prologue where the grand-grandfather with this um, chocolatier and uh, with this receipt and um, something sensual. I wanted to start this book with something beautiful, something sensual, something poetic and even like maybe nostalgic um, because this is something that is going to end after entering of the Red Army and the times are changing and everything is transforming. So um, maybe that's why. Mm. Because of course you you also can start it in, in I don't know, in the 17th century or you can start it in 89 or I don't know. You don't have this exact starting point. But I knew, okay, it's like focused on the last hundred years and it's focused on the Soviet um, period. So... Um, let's start a little bit, a little while before that. Mm. <coughs> and you tell the story of the Yashi family, uh, six generations. It's I can show the Swedish actually because there is a help for readers here. You have a family tree of the all the persons, or not all the persons in the book, but uh, the the main characters, so to speak, and that's also in the German one. Um, did you have a family tree like that yourself when you were writing? No. no? <laughs> I mean, um, you mean the... Uh, like a fictional tree or my... No, I mean, if you actually posted something on the wall to just keep track of the... Ah, yes, yes. Different I characters did. in yes. the book. And datas, because I'm so terrible with like numbers, and um, I, I had to do that. But not so complicated or huge as you can imagine. It was quite easy, like something similar, yeah. Mm. But like when he or she was born, and when he or she died, and what happened in between, sometimes, yes, I, I needed the structure a little bit to not completely get lost. <laughs> you, you mentioned your heavy research for the book, and uh, you dedicate the book to your grandmother, your father, and your mother, and your father is, gets his dedication because he left you with questions, I think it says, uh, or something, but, or he learned you how to put questions, perhaps. But uh, this 
time in the archives, or, or were you at the archives, or uh, where did you seek all the historical information that you needed? Mm, it was similar with the writing process, because I didn't really have a plan. Um, it was also quite intuitional. I mean, I started, in the beginning, I just started to read books, everything I could get. And of course, watching a lot of documentaries or movies about that time. And I also do speak Russian, so that made a lot of things easier. And But after a while, I realized, okay, it's not enough. I have to go to all the places and see all by myself and even make some interviews maybe or try to get some archives and um, libraries and so on. And the last two years, I got a scholarship. Um, it's it's called, it's from the Bosch Foundation in Germany and it's a really um, good thing because it's for journalists and writers exactly for like research in Eastern Europe or in Africa. Um, and I got it so I could afford not to do like other stuff or work for some other projects. And I traveled a lot, um, uh, especially uh, through uh, Russia, Moscow and Petersburg. It was like the main part of my research, but also Tbilisi. And a lot of different things. I mean, I went to museums. I went to in Moscow, for example, there is this one critical political center called Sakharov Center, and they do a lot of um, like memory work or exhibitions or some critical discussions, and it was really helpful. And in St. Petersburg, I was really lucky because I met a woman. She was working for a library there, and she was specialized on... Um, like newspapers and magazines from 20s and 30s. And it was also quite helpful because it un helped me to understand how the propaganda worked. Because when you see these newspapers, what they are writing about and how they are writing or do, and what are they not writing about, it helps a lot to understand. Um, but I also did some interviews and um, yeah, archives. I went to some, but I mean the main archives, like this really evil ones and interesting ones, like the KGB and NKVD archives, they are still closed. So and they will remain closed in Russia. I cannot imagine that they will open them. So that's why um, it was a bit pity, of course, because I think there is so much more treasure um, to be discovered, but it was not really possible. Um, so I tried to get everything I could, what would help me to understand this period, this, this system, and so on. Sometimes it was also helpful to talk with some people. Um, I also did, that was a funny part actually, I did... Um, I did some interviews even with my family members and friends of mine because there is a chapter, it's only, um, I don't know, two, three or four pages where are only the Soviet Union is described only by like things and clothes and smell mm -hmm. and taste. And it was really funny because each generation has its own memories. Um, like my parents um, remember completely different things, for example, than my generation or my grandparent generation. That was funny. So I tried to do everything that would help me to continue and kind of understand things in a better way. Mm. You mentioned the interviews. Which, which kind of people did you... Um, as I mentioned, I mean, um, I talked... I remember one, one really... Um, that was an impressive 
um, encounter with a old man at Sakharov Center in Moscow, and he had like a panel discussion, and it was about gulags and um, prisoners, um, and he was one of them, and he talked, and um, he was talking about um, that he was imprisoned without knowing why, um, and um, he lost like everything, family and job and so on, and he didn't even know why, what happened. So I guess he was deceived. Um, and he spent, uh, I don't remember, five years, six years, seven years, uh, somewhere in Siberia, and really, of course, terrible things he was talking, but the main thing, he described the day when Stalin died. And um, he described as all the prisoners came out like in the backyard and started to smash their heads against walls and and grief and cry. And afterwards, I, I asked him because I could not really understand how it's possible. And I thought, why did you cry? Because, I mean, you should have been happy because he was like the symbol of all the evil that happened to you. And he told me the sentence, and I remember I, I, that helped me so much, even better than any book I could read about the perversion of the system. And he told me that something like that, I don't remember the exact words, um, that, yes, I know when I'm talking right now to you and describing that, it seems so, it seems not really understandable to me, but back then, Stalin was such an instance, he was such a god that I was always thinking, like all the other prisoners, that I don't know, but he knows, he will know. So, and I remember that was like, okay, how perverted the system is. I mean, what an instance, he's like more than a god, you know? So things like that, different. So I didn't do a lot of interviews, but sometimes I did it with an old lady. She was like one of the mistresses of Beria. Uh, she was more, I don't know, 92 or something. <laughs> and it was, um, it was a great um, talk because um, she also, <laughs> she told me, I don't know if it's right, but um, because there are so many myths and legends about him, um, and his love affairs, but um, she, I mean, we were sitting after his 50 years later, after all that, or 60 maybe even, and I wanted to ask her like critical questions about him, of course, but uh, she was all the time talking how nice he was, and what a nice guy, and what a great lover, and what kind of presents <laughs> he did to her. And in the beginning, I was completely shocked because I, I prepared a lot of really important questions. But in the end, I really enjoyed that because it also helped me to understand how things can, I mean, how um, people are packable of, of how to, what's the English word of that? Verdrängen? Verdräng, mm. um, verdräng, yeah, in yeah. Swedish. I yeah. okay. don't remember yeah. this, the English one. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what I wanted to say is that sometimes even not getting the answers you're seeking for might be more helpful than what you're looking 
for. So in that case, or even the case with the old uh, man in Moscow, it was the same because it helped me to understand a lot, like even more, much more than if I would read books or um, statistics or some facts. Mm. Uh, Lavrenti Beria, uh, who you mentioned, he, he was chief of the secret police for a long time and he was also involved in the building of the Soviet atomic bombs. Uh, he was involved in everything that's kind of terrible and evil, <laughs> yes. And he plays a pretty big part in this book, especially in the book about Christine. Yeah. And and did you use this this lady telling you how nice nice he was because you, you get that picture a bit. I mean, he's he's a terrible guy in the book as well, but he also has this kind of I don't know. He's a womanizer, of course. And I mean, for me, it's always important, and even if it's about a mass murderer, um, not to create kind like the cliches of black and white and good and bad because. It is not that way in life. I don't think so. Um, and it's always like, it's about contradictions and it's about um, complex human conditions because it's not so easy to, yes, um, for this is a good example for that to describe what I mean. For me, when I read about him and all the terrible stuff and I, I of course, he's like a monster. But for that lady... He was a lover. And she, I mean, she had time, like 15 years to rethink. <laughs> But she didn't. It. No. So this is also telling a lot about human beings. And um, sometimes maybe it's more important to, to hold on that imagi imagination of you or the fantasy to, to survive. Maybe she would, I don't know, maybe she would commit suicide if she would agree or um, say that he was a mass murderer and she spent like, I don't know, she, she was sleeping with him. I don't know. Um, so um, for me, it's important. And it, it was difficult because he's a real person. He's um, Stalin and Beria, like two historical characters who... Are real, and I was dealing with that how to write about them without becoming like too psychological because I wanted to avoid to explain things. Like, you know, he became this way because he was not loved as a kid and his mom was um, not nice to him. So I think it's also kind of too simple. Um, and it was quite helpful after I realized I could write about him from a Uh, point of view of one of the characters. So I would not write about him directly, uh, only like from Christine's uh, perspective. And that helped a lot because I remember that I was, um, I was questioning myself how to deal with that because all the other characters, they're, they're fiction um, and it's like I can do whatever I want, but in that case, of course, there are a lot of facts and, and I cannot create this character only like by my imagination. And Stalin, he's not appearing so often or entering the stage of that book. He's kind of like an instance above um, during the whole book. But Beria is, yes, he's quite um, visible and um, That helped me a lot to write about him from like outside, from Christine's um, point of view. Uh, 
and and we spoke about that when we did the interview as well but but this is also the reason why you call stalin the generalissimus and uh, beria the little big man they're they're not named i think they're named at the end of the novel perhaps but and, and this is like the fairy tale where you where you can't say this is our harry potter this is uh, voldemort yes moment, yes. <laughs> yes but but uh, do you think was was this because you didn't want to get in their heads? You didn't want to explain. Was this also not t not telling their names? Was that no. a bit distance? No. No, I thought that these two men had such a huge impact on the whole century and on everybody uh, described in that novel and appearing in that novel, and they have such a big and terrible impact even now on like the whole Eastern Europe, um, that for me it was important to, um, that Nita, who is telling the whole story, that she has to like pass the whole century and tell all the secrets and unveil all this, everything that happened and like break free from the change, chains of the past. Um, and after that, she, these two men are kind of losing their power. And it seemed to me logical or um, natural to name them in the end uh, by telling a joke, an original joke from the 30s. It's not quite funny, but still. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of really... Um, <laughs> a bad joke? Black humor, maybe. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah, and that felt kind of natural and when you can laugh about somebody he has no power about you anymore and that was the point i wanted to point out maybe um because she has to yeah she has to by telling all that and um expressing all that she is kind of this is maybe my illusion, but this is what I really wanted to um, describe or write about. Um, you get a chance to, to maybe become more liberated or free or somehow um, leave things behind. And that's her goal, I guess. You spoke before about the, the people grieving when Stalin died and, and you thought they should be happy. But but um, there is still a, somewhat of a Stalin cult in Georgia, right? Because he's from Georgia from the beginning and Beria as well. Mm -hmm. But there there is also a Stalin museum, you told me. It's crazy, yes. We have this... Um, really embarrassing Stalin Museum and I cannot really believe that it's still is there. But um, I mean the younger generations are of course of course all critical and there is a, always a, like a huge um, discussion in society how to deal with that museum. This is a place, his birthplace and it's a small tiny head but backwards it was built in the 50s. This is this monumental Soviet architecture, this really cruel and somehow frightening house with a lot of his belongings and his train and his, uh, yeah, a lot of stuff. But there is only like one small tiny information um, about the victims. And 
it's yeah, uh, it's it's um, crazy somehow. Like so, um, and there are some old people, uh, and I mean, I'm really happy that the youngers are <laughs> thinking like more in a critical way, and of course, even like my parent generation, I don't know anybody who is kind of a Stalin fan, of course, but there are this grandparent generation who are somehow still thinking that he was a winner. I think the difference between, for example, because this is a question a lot of people in Germany keep asking me, and I think the difference also why history, I mean, when you ask somebody in Germany about Hitler, he's like the reincarnation of evil. And when you do the same with Stalin, it's not always like the same association. It's kind of okay, he was also evil, but kind of bit less, and <laughs> but it's wrong. I mean, he did like the exactly same things. Uh, even you have even the percentage of victims are like higher. Um, but one historical difference is that Stalin was a winner. He won the Second World War. I mean, that was like this myth in in the Soviet Union. So that's why he was excused. There were a lot of things that been excused because he, in like from the later point of view, mm, that's the one one thing. And the second one, and this is a really special one. I think this is a Georgian way of Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> is uh, and that I realized also by uh, uh, doing an interview with a <laughs> with a Georgian guy who was kind of a fan of Stalin. Um, and I realized it quite late. But this is my theory. I don't know if it's right. But Georgians, I mean, we're like a small country and <laughs> not so many people. And we have always this complex of not being visible, not being heard. Um, so always like in the shadow of some big countries and uh, cultures and always trying to, yeah, to, to um, keep our, our, our voice. So, um, and Stalin was, I mean, there are some people in Georgia still who identify themselves with him because <laughs> that's what the guy <laughs> told me, I mean, this old man <laughs> said, um, yes, I know, okay, he killed, because Stalin, he was not patriotic. He killed a lot of Georgians. He was not kind of... Um, uh, graceful or nice to his own people. He didn't even came for a lot of years back to Georgia after he was in Moscow. So, um, because he went to Russia and he made Russia, that was his, how to say this, um, he used this word that he made Russians go down on their knees as a Georgian. Ah, okay. You understand what yeah, I mean? Yeah. So <laughs> this is the kind of complex of, and he identifies himself even with a, like a mass murder and he killed his own people. It's, it's crazy completely, but still he has like, you know, he was really powerful and he made Russians bleed. So this is a... Is that a revenge thing that the Russians made... Georgians it's not quite a no? revenge. It's I think this is a complex of um, not being powerful or being empowered. Uh, and this, when you look at Georgian history, you always have this this 
Persians and Turks and Russians coming and conquering and um, always like fighting for for keeping our own identity. So I think this is something I cannot really explain, but it's, this is an interesting psychological phenomenon, I guess. Mm. But it's ha has it affected the reception of your novel? You think in Georgia mm. that there still is some some sort of a Stalin cult in different. I don't think that people who like Stalin would read my books. Okay, so good. They shouldn't. That's why I, <laughs> I'm kind of uh, yeah. I mean, there was there were some some people who who um, criticized that, but uh, I mean, not so much. But main main uh, critic um, was that I was like kind of too how to say that I was trying to please the Germans or the Western Europeans. Mm. So, yeah. Because <laughs> you wrote it in German. Because or? I wrote it in yeah. German and because it's like, yeah, I don't know what, what, um, what, the, what do they really mean, but um, yeah, so it was one of, so I remember that. I was like Ingemar, I was totally, I swam through the pages, I loved it, I wept, uh, laughed, uh, was terrified, uh, etc. But, but one thing that interested me a lot with the book is, and we're going to get to the family soon, I promise you, but one more thing on history, because I got history from another perspective. And that was the same case for you, I read in some interview, that you went to school in a German school in Georgia, and you got the, like the Second World War was told out of the Western perspective, and, mm. or am I not right? Um, you are right, but it's not because, I mean, I went to a school with like a big focus on German culture and literature, but it was not that I've been teached completely in German, so. Okay. It's not because of that, but yes, at some point, while I, after moving to Germany, I realized that I know uh, like the whole 20th century, um, uh, and the history of the 20th century, uh, much better from the Western uh, perspectives than the Eastern. And it's not about I spent so many years in, in, in Germany, it was because in Georgia we didn't have this kind of analyze like Germans did. And... Um, it was not like a taboo and people were talking and there have been always a lot of stories from my like grandparents about this gulag and things and Second World War and my grand-grandparent, um, grandfather uh, who didn't return from the war and so on. So somehow I had a lot of um, stories uh, uh, on my mind, but I didn't have this whole picture. It was like puzzle, you know, and I only had just like tiny parts. And in Germany, it's impossible to live in Germany and not to know things or get to know things about, for example, Second World War or the Nazis. So um, I think that was the main reason. And as I realized that, I was kind of shocked because I thought, how it's possible? I know much more about the Nazis than about the communists. And I mean, I even was born in, under that regime and uh, spent my childhood during that time. So uh, how it can be? And, um, and well, I, Was that something you wanted to tell in the book? I mean, deliberately, like, I'm going to tell you the Eastern version of... Yes, I, I, I wanted to find, like, my own perspective, maybe. Uh, and that would 
yeah, and of course that would be not this Eurocentristic uh, perspective, um, because Georgia is like, a, we don't even know, is it Europe or is it Asia, and always quarreling about that, so it's called the balcony of Europe. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, as you said, Nitsa is uh, the narrator of the book. Mm -hmm. And she tells the book, uh, she actually addresses it to uh, Brilka, which we already get to know in the title. It's for Brilka. Uh, how come you wanted this, um, this direct approach from the narrator to another fictive character character in the book? Mm, that was um, something that helped me a lot because I was thinking for a long while um, how I'm going to tell the story and to whom I'm going to tell and why. And um, I wanted to avoid the illusion of being a historian because I'm not. And even I did a lot of research and even it's based on a lot of facts and the main line, red line of that book is the real history, still it's fiction. And it's like my interpretation of things. And for me it was important to avoid that illusion of, okay, you know what, I'm going to explain how it was. And, um, and that's why I've decided to um, tell the story from like the modern or present point of view. Mm, I mean... Nietzsche is telling the story in 2000, I don't know, seven or something. Uh, six, I think. Six, seven, yeah. yeah. And um, she is, has also this distance. And um, there was also a uh, great opportunity for me to completely disappear behind here because, because I didn't really wanted to hear my voice in that book. I didn't really, um, yeah. I, I I wanted to avoid to be kind of present and um, be seduced by uh, my own story. Uh, so that was a great opportunity not to do so. And the next helpful level uh, was addressing this book to someone. Because um, all the time, even by telling the story and keeping going on, there are always some moments where she can take a breath and talk about her doubts and fears because these doubts and fears are also being like my feelings. Um, so in that case, we're like, um, we feel the same because for example, there are some moments when she's describing that somebody, um, her grandmother, grand-grandmother kissed her fiancé under a, I don't know, cherry tree, and the next sentence she's saying, but you know, Brulka, I'm not quite sure if it was a cherry tree, but does it matter? Because this is what, um, it's the imagination, what's important, and not like the facts. So that was also helpful for me to, um, to avoid this completely realistical approach of history because still, yes, of course, I, I, I did my best. I tried to do this research and um, name the facts and name like the big social and political events and so on, but still it's, it's fiction. And um, so I needed to find a form that would 
kind of helped me go this way. I think I think you did it very nicely, of course, and and you you put it very nicely when Nietzsche says, uh, "Die Vermutung ist das, was erzählenswert ist, nicht die Gewissheit." Yeah, this is what I was talking about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I I actually put a question here, but but you already answered it, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> but uh, because that is something that. Um, that, you, that, that drives you as an author as well, I suppose, because going to the archives, you don't know what, what you will find there, but the, the things you don't know about, is that something that keeps you wanting to go on and move on and write on? Yes, but yeah, I guess so. Um, for me, it's really, really important to, that's why I couldn't be good as a, like, documentalist or maybe even a journalist because for me it's always important to be completely independent and free in my imagination and I always found it hard that's the main reason also why it was difficult to write about Beria or Stalin because for me it's much more interesting and exciting to invent things like my way even if they existed than to be obliged to describe the whole um, how it has been because even if I do like my best and do the best research in, on earth it will still be my imagination of something so and this is, this, this is something that's, um, that I need um, for my writing process not to feel like okay there is a truth or there are some facts and I have to describe it the way they've been or somehow feel um, yeah, obliged. Um, so this is um, what I need to, um, I have to be free to do it like in my own way. Mm. You mentioned the book begins with a prologue. Um, it's also called Die Partitur des Vergessens, Glömskans Partitur. How come? I mean, a book is about a remembrance, isn't it? <laughs> or uh, yeah, but the frame of the book is that she is not willing to do that remembering work, as I call it, because she wants to avoid it. And she fights really long time with her niece because she is the symbol of everything she tried to left behind. And uh, in the beginning, this is how the book begins, she lives in Berlin, she is trying to do her living and she doesn't want to be um, she doesn't even want to be in a really deeply emotional relationship she always wants to like stay out of something keeps a distance she doesn't want to be involved in anything and she tries to survive because she um, she's kind of really traumatized a lot of not such nice things happen to her so that's why she lives the way she lives and when Brilka appears it means that she has to like remember a lot of things and look have a look at a lot of things and a lot of people who um, are not alive anymore and it's painful so that's why she is she wants to forget she doesn't really want to look back because she um, she was someone who tried to keep things kind of going on or working and it ended up in a complete catastrophe. So that's why she's avoiding all that and um, 
I guess that's why this um, the name. Mm. Because she's an unwilling uh, narrator, she doesn't want to. She keeps telling that I don't. Yeah, yeah. She tries to. She 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 tries to um, avoid this mission for a really long while, but only like in the end or after months. I don't know what the exact period it is. Uh, she realized that she has no other chance because the importance of that girl is kind of bigger than her uh, will to ignore or forget. So that's why she takes a risk, even knowing that all the ghosts are coming back and all the emotions are swapping over her. But, but when she does, when she starts to tell the story, we go back to around 1900, the mm -hmm. turn of the century. Uh, we we meet the chocolate maker, which is the like pat patriarch, if you will, of this uh, Yashi family, and uh, he tells his daughter Stasia. Um, or Stasia, perhaps? Stasia, yeah. Stasia, sorry. Um, about this secret recipe for hot chocolate, uh, like the drink, hot chocolate beverage. And this is a recipe that's both like a blessing and a curse in the book. <laughs> and for those who haven't read the book here yet, how many of you have read the book by now? Well, pretty much. But for those who haven't, could you please tell them uh, what, what does the chocolate, what is the chocolate's role in this book? <laughs> it's like a secret recipe for hot chocolate, Vienna style. It means it's not like cacao basis. It's, it's more like real chocolate, melted. <coughs> it's really tasty. Um, but I mean... I didn't plan this chocolate thing to become so, such a main issue in that book. And, <laughs> <laughs> and everybody keeps asking about it. And everybody yeah, keeps asking. Yeah, and in Germany, Sorry. it's also always, and some people are writing me if I have this recipe or and then can I share <laughs> them. I don't have. You like chocolate at all? <laughs> I like chocolate, but not as much as one might think. And okay. the, the really cruel thing and really dangerous thing was that I was touring around Switzerland and everyone was <laughs> presenting <laughs> really great chocolate. <laughs> so it's, it was, it was um, uh, really seductive, yes. But I'm not such a crazy, um, crazy about the chocolate. Uh, um <laughs> So um, for me, it was it, mo it was more a symbol, and I didn't mean it in such a literally way as um, people were writing about it or talking. But of course, it's a um, thing of interpretation. Everyone can see something completely different in that chocolate. First of all, I wanted to begin this book with something, as I mentioned before, with something really sensual, something nice. And I mean, chocolate is thing most of people like chocolate. So, and I wanted to uh, for this grand grand um, father to um, have a profession or to have something that he could like um, that one could give from one generation to another. And it would be difficult if you would be a doctor or a lawyer. 
And so that was a really practical thing in the beginning. But after um, doing research and talking with people and writing that book, uh, there have been a word or two maybe that people mentioned a lot when, when I was talking with them about the Soviet period. And that was fate or destiny. Um, and I thought it was really interesting because I started to think about what does it mean and do we believe, for example, we, like modern people, do we believe in that kind of thing? Because now we live in a complete illusion of this individual world and you rule your own life and you're like the master of all. And in, in Soviet Union it was like... Um, it was so hard to live in an individual way and everything was, was like dictated from this instance above and every kind of liberty or freedom, it, you had to fight for that and every difference, even just like clothes, yeah, um, it was... Yeah, you had to fight for that. And that's why people... And sometimes when, when people were all just like tired or had not this power to fight, um, they often mentioned this, this was my destiny, this was my fate, I could not really, what, should ha what, what, what kind of things I could have done or how should I have changed things um, in, in a better way. So, um, and I think it's also really human and understandable that you cannot fight like 24 hours a day. And I found that interesting, and that was mainly a question to me and not an answer. So it was like more a symbol. So does it mean that we are all like gods of our own life? Do we have all in control? Do we can, I, I mean, can we uh, decide everything, even in, even in this free world we're living in? Um, I'm not quite sure, but I don't have this right answer to it. It was more like, okay, I wanted to, to forward my question to the readers, but I didn't really mean it in such a literal way. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but the chocolate maker can't decide his own destiny. I mean, it, because at, yeah. at the beginning of the book, the chocolate is very much a symbol for the family's wealth. They're making really good money because of this, not because of the drink, perhaps, but because of his uh, mm -hmm. small chocolates bars and, and yes. whatnot. In, in, and, and after a while, the chocolate factory is turned into a state-driven factory, which means that the chocolate that used to be very good Vienna-style <laughs> is suddenly Soviet-style chocolate, which isn't that tasty. They're not even uh, chocolate anymore. Exactly. Yeah, uh, they're selling potatoes, smashed potatoes, and stuff like that. It becomes more like a canteen. Um, yeah, it's sad. But I mean, even the characters, they're completely, I've tried to describe that they're dealing with this chocolate thing, this magic thing, uh, in a completely different ways. There are some people who are like, some characters, they're always fighting and trying to do things their own way, like Kitty. And they don't believe in this kind of fate. Uh, and there are people who are like Stasia, she is not, she's a dreamer and she, um, knows that she is not able to like go straight forward and um, 
have some battles, so that's why she's, she, she arranged herself with all the circumstances. And, uh, but she's, she's uh, a bit crazy, so she believes in ghosts and she believes in the supernatural powers. And uh, she does believe that this is a cursed chocolate and they have to pay a high price for that. So for me, it's, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's really like a question more than that, that this chocolate has like this only one meaning. <laughs> For sure, I think it has several meanings, of course. But but Stasa, you mentioned her again, and she rushes to Petrograd in the midst of the uh, revolution to find her husband who who left her. Or I don't think they're really married, are they? Or they they, they marry and then he leaves or something. Yeah. Yes. They marry and they yeah. And he lives quite like soon after that, and uh, has to fight for the revolution. Yeah, and she ends up in a house in the Fontanka Street, uh, which is also a house where it's locked down. There lives a lady there who <laughs> believes in the better old days, and it's like this house is a, like a space on its own where where time stands still. And in the streets, the revolution is on its way the present is happening, or the future even, as many of them believe. But, and I think that is the brilliant thing with your book, that you have these uh, different time, times in the time, so to speak. Do you, do you get what I mean? That in the house, time stands still, yeah. it's a past thing, uh, etc. And I was curious about the different time periods, because Stasia is, uh, that's 1917, as I said, and then we go on until 2006. But were, were some of these time epochs uh, more important or more interesting to write about for you? Um, I would not say so, but of course you have some... Uh some time periods so they were more challenging and also quite emotional. For example, this um, blockade of Stalingrad that was quite terrible, all the Second World War um, and this um, NKVD, it's like the former KGB episode with Kitty, it's also this period of the espionage and everyone is like deceiving others. Um, I would say there were some periods more intense or more um, difficult to describe or capture somehow emotionally and some of them were easier, for example like 90s because that was a period I grew up and I remember really well and uh, I didn't have to dive too much into it because I, I it's like my my bags are always with me <laughs> so and I just like can open them um, and some of them were challenging yeah for example this revolution period because that was kind of really far away and I had to read a lot and understand because it's it's also such a chaos and you don't know so many parties, so many like political powers and interest groups, and everybody's like fighting against who is against whom, and um, yeah, such a big mess. So it took me a while to get through it and kind of make my own uh, picture of it. Um, but it was every of each period was 
quite interesting and somehow intense. The only thing that you can <laughs> you can say about each period beginning from 1917, it never gets boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of things going on, for sure. Yeah. And the interesting thing about it, it was also when you start with the history and doing this research, you cannot, for example, you cannot uh, only... Um, get into Georgian history without Russian history, Russian history without, and I mean, the, the, the whole world history. So somehow it's all, it's, it's like a big, big, big odyssey and um, adventure. It's always like, there is so much more. Even after all that research, I, I cannot say that I found like every answer and understood everything or something like that. There's so much things left. And I mean, we um, cut it out almost 200 pages, so. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, yeah, because I, I, I was like a kid, you know, I was going in a, in a toy shop or something, and everything that I found interesting, I put it into a book, but my publisher was like, okay, maybe this issue is like too much, so let it out, so just focus on what's really, really important and main thing. So, yeah, it, it's a big treasure somehow. Also tragic and emotionally not easy because I had to deal with some documents that made me really, really depressed and there have been some days when I was asking myself why I'm doing that. But on the other hand, there's so much more also emotional and great things where you start to love human beings and you understand and you become kind of hum humble. Um, but um, I mean, it's still, it is a treasure for, for a writer. It is, there's so much to discover. Mm -hmm. yeah. For a reader as well. <laughs> discover, of course. But we, we spoke about Stasia and her children, Kostya and Kitty. They, they have a very different um, history, uh, one could say, or, or different lives, because Kitty, is, uh, she suffers from, from the history. And, and uh, Kostya is more a man who rises with Stalinism and uh, he's a perpetrator perhaps or an officer. She is uh, a victim. Um, how was, is it, is it different to write about the victims of history or the perpetrators of, of history? Of course, it's different, but I always tried, even Kostya, I mean, he's always like the bad guy in that book, and I don't think so. I'm always kind of, I have this mother instinct. <laughs> you said you, you always have to defend yeah, him, and defend I, I didn't mean you have to defend him now. I mean, because he's, he's not uh, black and white, of course. I always try to, to, because he, I mean, of course he is, and he is somehow terrible and makes some terrible decisions and he messes up so many lives. But still, he, he is an ideologist and he believes in what he's doing. He's really into that ideology and he believes that communism is like, yeah, it's, it's a holy thing to him. And he, I mean, he addresses his whole life and everything and his power and his use and everything to, to the system. And it's not only because he is he wants to take some advantage from that, it's also because he really does believe in what he's doing. And Kitty, of course, it's kind of easier to um, understand 
or become or identify myself with somebody who is like on the right side and she's always a little bit revolutionary and she tries to fight and tries to make things going her own way. Uh, but I'm always more interested in, in challenges. For me, it's more interesting to write about a KJB a man in his 50s than about like a 37 or 38 years old woman in Berlin or Tbilisi because this is something I can learn much more and I'm not so much interested in like this autobiographical stuff. I mean there are great writers who can who can make out of their lives uh, great literature but I'm not among them and for me it's always like much more exciting to to um, um, invent characters or somehow um, uh, try to um, capture them uh, who are not quite similar or had, uh, are, are uh, contradictionally or are also um, difficult and complex and even annoying and maybe somehow also terrible. Um, I really enjoyed, for example, he's like not a main character, but I really, really enjoyed him, Georgi Alanya. He's mm -hmm. like, uh, yeah... Uh, he rules a lot, like from the background. Um, and he's also, he's on one hand, he's great and he helps Kitty and he's a, a most loyal friend. But on the other hand, he is, I mean, he's deporting people from uh, uh, UK or Western Europe and uh, uh, back to the USSR where he knows that people were going to be imprisoned or even killed. So this all coexists and it's interesting for me to work in that way and yeah, um, dive into this kind of characters than writing like f about someone who is mm, similar to me or kind of familiar to me. You mentioned Georgi Alanya uh, and he's a really interesting character because we might want to explain that Kitty leaves Georgia. She goes to London and becomes a singer-songwriter and a protest singer. And she goes to Prague and uh, she performs there and she's very much opposed to what her brother stands for, actually, for, against communism, uh, mm -hmm. etc. And his best friend is this man who you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And he has, he's an, it's like an agent who watches over her. And the thing he does, he, he calls her all the time mm -hmm. and they speak on the phone. But she never knows, or after a while she does, but at the beginning she, she don't know. For years she doesn't know, yeah. Who he is. How, how was it to, do, to, to uh, describe that? Just a voice on the phone. I don't know. I, I like this character and I like to work on him somehow. And um, I had a lot of empathy with him because I could imagine him as this broken man with really, yeah, he is not being loved. And still he's so polite and so gentle. But yeah, on the other hand, he does a terrible job and he has this issue with his father without knowing who his father is or was. And um, I like that relationship because it's kind of really special and um, somehow maybe romantic um, without being in a classical way romantic because they, yeah, they never meet. 
and she doesn't even know how he looks like or his name. But over the years, he is like most loyal friend she um, she's got, and um, he helps her. He helps her to survive, and she is completely broken when she arrives in London. She's she's completely like a um, devastated person, uh, and she has to. Um, kind of reinvent herself, maybe, I don't know if you could say so, and find a completely new way of beginning a new life. And he is one of the main, yeah, he helps her a lot. And um, I, I enjoy it, that, yeah, I like this relationship and because it's, it's so fragile and um, kind of, <laughs> Um, yeah, kind of in an old school way, maybe romantic, almost platonic. Yeah, perhaps. yeah. But uh, it's good that you mentioned love because it's easy to talk about Stalin and uh, the wars and whatnot in the book. But it's also a very rich book about love. It's it's so many love stories that you take with you as a reader. And, and I, I, I was thinking about Kostya because you said you always want to defend him. And, and there's a wonderful love story between Kostya and Ida or Ida yeah. at the beginning. Yeah, love stories. I mean, <laughs> I love uh, big stories. I, I mean, my background is I'm from theater. And of course, I like dramas and I like pathos and I like like the... Uh, Greek ancient uh, place, and this is this is maybe something that had a huge impact on me, and I so maybe it's it has to do a lot of with my taste even in literature, because um, I wanted this book to be not only like you know um, cruel and terrible and grey and um, depressing because of course there are a lot of things they are depressing but it's not my fault it's the history <laughs> and uh, we won't blame you and I was also seeking for a lot of beauty to to have something like in power against all that gray and terrible and depressing stuff and what's better than love and all the love stories to to have like a mm, counterpart for sure <laughs> I mentioned before that um, you dedicate the book to your father, your mother, and your grandmother. And your grandmother, you, you dedicate this book. Um, I'm going to check here. Uh, da, da, da. Yeah, your grandmother, who gifted me 1,000 stories and a poem it says at the beginning and and every uh, small chapter in the book starts with a piece of a poem or it could be a piece uh, of political um, propaganda perhaps but, but there are a lot of poems uh, that you introduce to the readers um, how come you wanted to to do that my grandmother was uh, really a main person in my childhood and um, she doesn't live anymore, unfortunately. Mm, but she um, was the one who um, 
made me um, got addicted by literature, I guess, and books. And she was a great reader. And she was crazy about, I mean, she was um, she was mathematician. She had nothing to do with art, but um, she was crazy about poems, especially Russian ones, because she was Russian speaking. So she um, read a lot and we had a lot of um, poems at home. But as a child, I was not really into that. So she used to read a lot and she she could, um, I don't know, talk about it for hours. And I was a little bit bored, but in my teens and later, I kind of rediscovered it and uh, found it really, really great. But I never wrote a poem and I hope I will never will because I cannot <laughs> write poems. It could be a bit poems. too long. Maybe, yeah. yes, um, and uh, I, I think there's nothing better than a good poem, but nothing's more terrible than a bad one, so yeah. that's why I, I'll stay outside. But, um, yeah, back to the question. Um, I started to, um, I was, I visited an exhibition in the Sakharov Center in uh, Moscow, and I... <laughs> I, I, it, it was great because it was uh, an exhibition about the propaganda posters uh, from 30s and 40s and 50s. And it was so ironic, really, really ironic, because it's like the atom bomb in, uh, was invented for the human happiness or peace or things like that or uh, uh, we owe our happy childhood to the great generalissimus and things like that. So I started to make photos of them and decided to use them as a, like um, about the chapters. But after using them and a lot of others, um, this propaganda stuff, um, I realized that it's so, it's really kind of uh, terrible because if you read only this kind of quotes, uh, you might have an illusion that there's nothing beautiful existed during that time and nothing beautiful was invented in Soviet Union. And it, this is wrong, of course. So I started to uh, read and rediscover all this poetry, uh, Russian poetry, um, not only also Georgian and especially poems uh, they have been written or books been written uh, during that period and I discovered so much beauty so I found it kind of consequent to have both of them this propaganda stuff and this quote by some politicians really ironic things and this beautiful beautiful literature or sometimes even uh, songs or um, some quotes by some some great artists or uh, people lived during that time. Mm. But but uh, more uh, some of these poets were <coughs> censored or prosecuted in during the Soviet times. Was was that also something that want, mm. wanted you to make to include them? Yes, of course. Yeah, it's this is something you cannot avoid because all the biographies are kind of yeah. Uh, most of them somehow broken or impacted by the regime. Uh, so this this is something that happens automatically, I guess. But I would say not everyone. I'm not sure, but <laughs> um, maybe there are also some happy people. 
in the quotes or in the quotes. <laughs> I mean, you have David Bowie in the quotes as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I also have some Western um, artists. Yeah. Earth, wind, and fire. Earth, Earth, wind, and fire. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a lot some of happy disco things? stuff? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Since I asked you about both your grandmother and your father, I have to ask you about your mother, which also gets a dedication, and, and she gets it while she told you where to go find the answers. Uh, yeah, my, pastor, um, my father passed away quite early when I was 12, so um, that's why I could not ask him a lot of questions um, that I, um, I had. Uh, I wanted to address, uh, so my mother had to do, <laughs> like, um, um, had a, a bigger job to do, if you can say so, I don't know. So, um, it's difficult to talk about my mother. Oh, God. <laughs> you don't have to. I can <laughs> no, I mean, um, what's the question, uh, my mom, and why I addressed that? Yeah, I owe a lot of things to her, and um, we had a really Georgian mother and daughter relationships. Mm, so it means <laughs> it's intense to express it in a you diplomatical way. You have some intense mother-daughter relationships in the Oh, yes, yes. Oh, yes. Um, I have. Um, and... Um, she is a fighter, and I, I, I think that I learned a lot. Um, she's completely different. I mean, we're not... Um, she's a completely different type of uh, woman, and uh, she lives a different kind of life. But I could always go her, to her with when I had a problem or a question, and she tried to um, give me an answer, and I'm thankful to her for that. And um, I hope it lasts uh, for a while, yes. We spoke before about fairy tales or märchen, uh, and we mentioned Harry Potter, of course, but uh, um, you have one other thing in the book which reminds me a bit about um, like stories for kids, and that, that is the, the carpet, mm -hmm. the rug. And uh, that's an occurring theme as well, or, or a symbol of the, all the threads coming together to form a story. I think about uh, 1001 Night or something like that when I read that. Um, <laughs> why, why did you want to include the, the metaphor of the rug as a storytelling, as an That was story? a spontaneous decision um, because um, we also had this really beautiful red carpet at home and it belonged to my grand grandmother and I still do have this carpet in in my flat in Tbilisi and I really like it and love it and as a kid I always because it's on a on a uh, it's not on a floor it's on a wall it's uh, hanging and um I always remember my grand grandmother um, cleaning this carpet and uh, doing some, I don't know what's the English word for that. It's, um, you, you um, hit this. Yeah. It's beating the carpet. Ah, yeah, beating the carpet, thank you. And, um, and I like carpets, and I like yeah. It's it's a it's a beautiful symbol of all the threads and all this. Um, I mean this this complicated structure and some oriental um, 
carpets you can find. And um, I found it kind of beautiful for that book because it's it's like the same what Tasia is it's she's talking about that in that prologue and this is something that uh, Nita remembers very well and um, maybe I also was a little bit nostalgic about that I don't know mm. <laughs> Sometimes you don't have this logical answer because sometimes the books are uh, smarter than the writers. Sometimes it's like, um, I really do believe so because a um, lot of things I only understand when I finish the book or even with some distance or even understand something by, by becoming described by somebody else. Sometimes readers are talking about their impressions, and I never mentioned, I, I, I never um, thought about that. And I'm just really thankful that it's possible that they can see things that I didn't really plan. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I like that uh, about writing process. I like uh, to have both control and not controlling anything. It feels this way because sometimes I think people imagine uh, somebody who sits and writes a novel as a, I don't know, you're playing God and you have all this, yeah. But I don't feel that way at all. It's completely like different. Of course, you have to have this frame and you have to know what you're doing and what you want to write about and have a kind of plan. But um, most of the cases, I don't even know what is going to happen on the next page. And this is what I really love about the process. Um, getting lost, somehow getting lost and not having control about things that I thought I should control. <laughs> mm -hmm. Nice. The book was published in, in German, the original, in 2014. So that's uh, seven years ago. Uh, has the relationship between you and uh, the book uh, changed throughout the years? It remains close because <laughs> this book has, uh, I mean, this is a great gift, uh, but this book has much more lives than eight, so I have to continue. Um, for a while it was, it was difficult because it the first two years I was completely absorbed by and I was not expecting and I was not really ready for everything that happened then and I was on tour for almost two years like only in hotels and different cities and talking about that and I remember that yeah almost two years later I had this okay I have to just forget this book and do something completely else and get some distance and I did it and it was also really difficult because I knew the pressure in Germany that would be really really huge and everyone was expecting me to write like the second eight life after that book and I've been criticized a lot for the cat in general because it was something completely else and my publisher was kind of warning me but it was still difficult a difficult process before I could get the distance that is needed to, like, okay, I'm not only this book and I'm not going to stop uh, writing because 
it's impossible to, to um, and I don't want to, and it, I'm not interested in like repeating myself. So that was a process of like um, separation mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that took a while, maybe two years or something. But now it's great, and it's great because now it's like not in German-speaking world anymore, it's in different countries, and this is exciting because um, each country is different, and each audience is different, and readers are different, and questions are different, so somehow it's, it's, um, uh, it's much more exciting right now, yes. But it's, I guess it's, sometimes it's difficult, for example, when the new book is coming, uh, it's going to be published in spring, and I have to do like some work for that book and talk about it and then switch and talk about Brilka. Sometimes this is, this is somehow challenging, but I mean, it's a gift and sure. <laughs> these are luxury problems. So um, it's, it's really great that I have the, this opportunity. But the rights have been sold to 23 countries, right? And there is also know. film rights. So, yeah. are, are we going to be able to see this uh, wonderful? Okay, Siri. I was yeah. about to say this amazing long movie about, <laughs> but I thought about Ben Hur oh. or something like that, oh, yeah. <laughs> old style matinee movie for four hours. But yeah, they're sold. I'm not allowed to talk like uh, openly till this production company is going to announce it or launch it. Uh, but yeah, they're sold. Um, uh, but we won't tell them if you do. It's in it's in okay. it's a European uh, company, and uh, they want to or plan to make a series of it, out of it. And I'm kind of really excited and um, curious. But this planning, you know, this com this movie world, or oh, I would not. I mean, I'm, I would not have this patience because it's always like waiting and waiting. But it's signed, so I, I hope, <laughs> I hope it uh, they will start one day. Yeah. Yeah. But it's exciting. <laughs> I cannot really imagine that, but uh, it's wonderful. Yeah. Mm. But before you go and watch the TV series, I think everybody should read this amazing book by Nino Haratishvili. Thank you. So thank you so much, Nino, for thank you this conversation. Thank you.